Welcome to the Move Forward Podcast with Dr. Kim Moss. We are here to move you forward in the call of God for your life, your career, and your ministry through prophetic insight, practical teaching, and powerful conversations with influential leaders. Never throw away your confidence. It is time to move forward. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to the Move Forward Podcast. I'm your host, as usual, Dr. Kim Moss. I have a very special guest with me today. Special because he's becoming a trusted voice in my own life and a father in the faith to me. And he's a cherished teacher. He's a treasured friend. And I want to introduce to you today, Dr. Mark Sharona. Mark J. Sharona has been in the people helping business for more than four decades with a media presence spanning almost 200 nations. His message of wholeness through the integration of the spiritual and psychological is heard across the globe. He has a father's heart for emerging generations and he serves as the presiding bishop of Legacy Edge Alliance, a worldwide fellowship of senior apostolic leaders and churches. Bishop Sharona is regarded as an influential leader whose global reach, clarion voice, and prophetic insight are respected by leaders and followers alike. As an avid student, Dr. Sharona is a theosemiotician. I practiced that word, holding a doctorate of ministry in future studies as well as an MA in psych. He's also the author, an author, BCC certified coach, and is currently seeking a PhD as postgrad researcher at the University of Birmingham, United Kingdom, and is the founder and senior pastor of Church on the Living Edge in Orlando, Florida. He and his wife, Ruth, have two adult sons and four grandchildren. And you can find out more about Dr. Sharona and all of his resources at MarkSharona.com on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and by visiting Church on the living edge. Dr. Sharona, thank you for being on my show today. It's so exciting to have you here with me. It's great to be with you, Dr. Kim. Thank you. Well, I I remember hearing you the first time. I think it was in the early 2000s. I was uh, wrecked by the Holy Spirit in 1994. And I started seeking out uh, the prophetic and all those things that I remember seeing you. And honestly, I, I've always thought you were a little scary, that you're very fashionable and definitely Italian. And so yeah, it was such a great honor to be meeting you face to face. And I'm, I really am honored to have you in my life. But I want to get right to, right to our topic today because um, I think it's really important. I want to give you time to say whatever you have to say. You and I have spoken a few times about our concern for the church and uh, the emotional well-being of people after all the things that have we have been experiencing lately. Um, I really believe, and I think you do too, that um, all the change, the loss, the shaking, it is bringing sort of to the forefront a, a depression and an anxiety pandemic. Um, and we both agree, and I, you know, I've heard you say many times, you just don't declare this kind of thing away. And I think that's true. We, we believe in divine healing. I know that you do too. Um, but just as uh, I, when I was 19, I had a nervous breakdown and it wasn't like I could just say a, a couple of prayers or declare a couple of scriptures. It just it just wasn't going to go by any away by any sort of magical thinking. And I had to see a doctor. I went on medication for a time. I did pray and there was some deliverance that came and eventually great healing. But it, it took time and I needed to cooperate with my healing. 
Um, you have mentioned on occasion that you have been through something like this and you have learned so much. And I know that your studies and, and all of that uh, can speak into this. But can you tell us a little bit about your story? And can we talk about this subject today to help prepare people? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I, I uh, having been raised in a, in a pretty typical New York Italian family, um, Italians are born warriors. So worry is, is part of our DNA. And there's a lot of free-floating anxiety that we share frequently as gifts with one another. <laughs> our we, it goes along with the dysfunctional patterns of anger as well. So there's anxiety and anger, and they both flow really well together if you want to get indigestion. Um, but um, there, there was, at least for me, um, this awareness uh, that went way back in my journey that, that um, when, you, when you approach life from a perspective of uncertainty, um, with that can come anxiety. Now, anxiety is, is uh, ubiquitous to the human condition. Soren Kierkegaard's work um, a few centuries back really broke into um, the Enlightenment in a way that invited um, the development of understanding from a psychotherapeutic perspective of how to deal with anxiety. But he wrote it strictly from a Christian perspective. But growing up, um, it was as if worry and, and, and they're two different things, but they're related. Worry and anxiety were part of my life. And I learned how to manage it as well as I could. Um, by the time I was approaching this half century point, I was blowing and going. I was, um, I was in demand everywhere. Uh, I was... I was, uh, I, I, I mean, I was involved in Christian media, not that I'm not anymore, but I was involved at that time very heavily in, um, in Christian media. Um, I was constantly on air four and five times a week and being seen preaching, hosting. And then when I wasn't doing that, apart from pastoring, I was on a plane um, for years. Um, I, I spent my Sunday evenings away from home I'd come home from our midweek and I'd be right back out the next day and not get home until Saturday night. And I kept that pace up. But the more I began to accumulate, the more I began to feel like I'm carrying all this. And yeah. there came a point uh, when it all began to build up. And as long as that free-floating anxiety doesn't have any place to land, you're okay. Once it lands somewhere, um, then, then you begin to realize I can't run away from this. And I, I often say that when it all hit, if I had seen the bus coming, I'd have gotten out of the way. And so late 2006, early 2007, the bus began to approach me, but I couldn't see it. And by the summer of 2007, I was in the Bahamas with a dear friend that has gone home to be with the Lord, Miles Monroe. I was preaching at his conference. And um, there was a lot going on the night I spoke prior to me getting up. But there was a lot of anxiety going on inside me and, and panic. And it had been building. And it wasn't related to the conference. It was related to just a whole lot of accumulation of things that were that I right now, I, I think, just for the sake of 
brevity, I'll just say that it was all building up. And, um, and it, it began to hit uh, while I was speaking, I began to experience panic. Um, wow. To a degree, I hadn't experienced it before. And it was the first time in my life where the panic robbed me of sleep. Uh, I could not relax that night. I didn't even want to be alone in, in the hotel room. One of the guys that was traveling with me sat up with me the whole night. Um, I was that panicky. And it began to develop and grow from there until there came a point I was pacing the floors for two weeks, 24 hours a day. I could not, I could not function. I was pacing the floors. I was, the anxiety was intense. We were in the middle of, of all sorts of challenges with, um, with, with uh, false accusations against one of my sons. And, and, and then we were in the middle of a, of a building fund. Uh, we had moved from our former building in South, Southeast Orlando to the Northwest and went from a $7,000 a month mortgage to a $130,000 a month mortgage. And overnight we lost well over, oh, we lost probably close to 1,500 to 2,000 people. And we had 400 adults in December of 2006 when we moved in. And the $7,000 a month mortgage was only enough to cover the air conditioning bill in the new building. And um, so that, you know, and I had accumulated enough resources in my own private ministry that I was able to leverage some things to help the church. But, you know, that can only go so far. And I, I you know, I'm, I make my living for the most part on the road. I, 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 um, um, it's only been recently I get, I get a small stipend from the church, but my whole living has been made traveling. And so when this thing hit, I was faced with having to cancel meetings. I was faced with the pressure of having to pay bills, cancel meetings. So, so that just multiplied the anxiety. And there came a point between the sleeplessness and the anxiety that um, depression began to set in because anxiety and depression are bedfellows. Mm. And uh, more often than not, the longer the anxiety pro is prolonged, the more depression will set in. And it was it was very painful. And I, w I was in that kind of state for three and a half years. Well, you know, and I think that people can be surprised that, uh, you know, you're a minister. How, how do you suffer for something like that if you're a minister? I mean, don't you know all the right prayers to pray? Didn't you? Didn't you? Didn't you uh, rebuke all the right demons? You know, did it? You, you hear what I'm saying? I, oh, and, I, and, I and, and there were those voices that were telling me that don't you have enough of an anointing to get out of this? And uh, yeah, for sure, for sure. And I'm sure that wasn't helpful. Oh no, not at all. It was very. It made it worse. It made it much worse. I I began to realize what it must have been like. I I wouldn't compare what I went through with Job, but I could relate to the dynamics of the vexing of his spirit. When Job says that his spirit was vexed for the first time in my life, I had been through warfare before. I had been through battles with what what the old, what the ancient saints would call the dark night of the soul. I'm familiar with all that from an ascetic perspective. But um, this was this was a perfect storm. Everything that could go wrong went wrong. And I began to realize 
I didn't have the ability to get out of this one. I had to I had to come to terms with whatever I thought I knew worked. It isn't working now. And so what did you do? I I because I think that in that um you have learned some things about dealing with this kind of thing for people who are the the people who are listening and I have a lot of emerging leaders that listen. I have I have those who are already pastors who've been pastors and I I just feel like there are so many people dealing with this kind of thing right now and they don't know where to go with this. Where where do we go? How do we even begin the process? And um, and so can you speak to that? And yeah, well, and and it's not just one dynamic. Obviously, I'm running on empty. My adrenals are shot. Um, I am I'm working out every day, but I am not regaining my strength all of that plus i'm dealing with stressors that are mounting financial with the church um relational with challenges my sons are going through and those were deeply painful and um involved all sorts of dynamics that um were 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 harrowing and it was frightening and I didn't have the answers and I didn't have the solutions and I felt totally helpless and totally powerless. And thankfully, one of my dearest friends who I've known, again, an Italian from New York, um, was one of my teachers back in Bible school in Brooklyn, grew up on the same, grew up on Staten Island, just like I did, um, flew down to be with me for two weeks to begin with and stayed up with me while I paced the floors. And he is a very gifted pastoral counselor. He's also very gifted in deliverance, but he realized this wasn't a matter of deliverance. This was, this was, you got to walk through this. This is more than, this is not a simple, we cast it out and you walk away. He was, I mean, and he's very much proponent of when in, when in doubt, cast it out. That's his favorite. <laughs> <laughs> but he's brilliant and he's a brilliant, you know, he, 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 he He's one of those guys that that ought to get a PhD in clinical psychology without having to go through it because he said thousands of hours, thousands of hours. He's a true pastor and a dear friend. And I probably wouldn't have made it through without him. I could I could honestly say that he was he became the voice of God to me. And then on top of that, I had to go. um, I saw a therapist and had to work through the. Uh, dynamics of understanding how to deal with my um, my anxiety in a way that was um, a way I didn't want to deal with it. I had to learn to come to terms with accepting where I was because I was fighting it. And the more I fought it, the more power I gave it. And my, my mode was you rebuke this and you move on. Well, that's precisely what you can't do with this. So the more you do that, the more power you actually give it, because it's not strictly spiritual warfare. There are other issues. You know, we we talk often about the tectonic plates at the at the bottom of the ocean floor that when they shift, you know, they create fault lines and volcanoes and tsunamis. But the greater seismic tremors are the ones in our psyche. When we get to those points in life where we discover some of our magical thinking doesn't get us out of our challenges that we can't run away from, you know, and um, that was, 
it became probably the most defining moment in my journey of life um, that I had ever, ever been through. And it's changed my perspective radically on the human condition and on understanding how to deal with our emotions, in particular our negative emotions and our negative painful thoughts and human suffering and the nature of human suffering and pain, the nature of, of evil on top of that in, in a way that um, I am grateful that I've learned the lessons. I didn't want to learn them the way I had to learn them. And I'm not even saying God allowed it or that God caused it because God is not the author of the evil, but I do know God has used it. And, um, and, and I've learned a great deal from it for the sake of those that I serve. That's beautiful. I, I was really, I'm really moved by the fact that your friend flew in and sat with you for two weeks and then traveled with me for three and a half years, sat up with me in the hotels cause I couldn't sleep. So he, he, he endured sleepless nights as much as I did. And, and there were some very intense moments when the anxiety was deeply painful and the despair was overwhelming. And he was there with me through it all, praying with me, reminding me of who I was. I mean, it was at times, a thousand times a night, he would have to remind me, you're going to get through this. I, I think that speaks to the power of, of community and how much we need each other. Oh, I, no you know, in a time like this, when we've been through, what, a year and a half, and it's not over yet, of pandemic and all the things that have gone with that, um, I think one of the things, I have felt like one of the things that add, has added so much to the depression and anxiety is the isolation because we oh, we need the human contact. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, and and what's going on right now is is again you talk about seismic tremors in the psyche. Well, there are there are there's, we have a collective soul too. We're all related. We're connected. We're human beings. We're all part of this this thing together. And so the the unconscious restlessness that this has produced is creating all sorts of dis disturbances in the soul. So nightmares have become commonplace. Anxiety has become commonplace. The uncertainty itself has created a profound restlessness. And so there's, there are two dynamics going on. There is fear and there is flux or change. And they're both more intense now than they have ever been at any other point at least in our lifetime. And yeah. the mind was never intended to be able to cope with the bombardment of that level of intensity. But part of that is that the human race is hell bent on saving itself. And so like the original temptation, we want knowledge before we're able to handle it. And so the way we get destroyed is we go looking for knowledge in areas that we're not ready to handle. And so no matter what technology we come up with, we end up discovering it has more power than we realize and we don't know how to tame it. And so in this rapid accelerated pace of change that started as the digital age or the information age, it is changing the game in a radical way. And so a virus out of China that comes out of a lab that in some ways was probably um, not just from an animal, but from human experimentation becomes something beyond what we expect. And Len Sweet and I wrote about this in our book Rings of Fire that we wrote back in late 2017 that came out 
just before the virus, while everybody else was prophesying it was going to be gone by Passover, well, I said, well, I said, I guess we missed it because we think it's going to be here for quite a while. And so <laughs> psychologists look at, at what's going on, and there's a lot of data right now that they're measuring, and they're, and they're deal, you know, you've got stress, you've got trauma, you've got anxiety, you've got depression, and most of the clinical psychological networks I'm a part of, both Christian and secular, are doing um, remedial work with many of their clinical psychologists to help them be bolstered to deal with the level of trauma that's going on in so many areas because of the isolation and because of what happens in isolation and the abuse and other things that are going on. So I know I'm rambling, so forgive me. No, you're not. It's fine. I, you know, I, I wanted, that's exactly what I wanted to talk about. And I know I've heard you say, I've heard you make this comment that we are dealing with a shadow pandemic. Yeah. Can you explain what is that? Yeah. So, so first and foremost, clinical psychologists call the shadow pandemic related to the sexual abuse that's gone on. But at a larger level, depth psychologists are saying what we're dealing with is things that have been hiding in our shadows, in the shadowy places of our life are coming to the surface. So, so let's make this really simple. Um, in depth psychology, there is the shadow and the persona. So if you remember the story of Peter Pan, it opens up with Peter Pan is looking for his shadow. His shadow is really mischievous and beyond his ability to control. And it happens to be dancing around on the ceiling in Wendy's, Wendy's bedroom. And he's got to try to come and get his shadow and get it. And there are parts of us. And there, there's a truth here because all of us have parts of us that we want to disown and parts of us we want to disassociate from, all of us. Um, good and evil runs through the very core of the human condition. And all of us also grow up into a world where we, we grow up, by the time we're seven or eight, we're, we, we have been thinking magically until all of a sudden stuff shows up at seven or eight and we realize life isn't that magical. You know, it's okay for me to be Superman at four and for my, 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 my friend, you know, my, my female friends to be Wonder Woman, it's okay for because kids need those kind of dreams but when they wake up they discover well you know maybe maybe life isn't that perfect but sadly a lot of us don't realize that none of us gets into adulthood without wounding because we live in an imperfect world we're all dysfunctional whether we want to admit it or not yeah. so we we don't resolve all our major issues emotionally our sense of insecurity or our lack of security, our sense of uncertainty, we carry that into adulthood. So whatever we don't deal with in adolescence shows up as unfinished business in adolescence between the ages of 30 and about 60 or 65 now because of the way lifespan is growing. So we spend most of our adult years trying to reconcile where's our shadow, where's the shadowy stuff that you know, we've got this persona that, we, you know, this projection of who we want everybody to perceive we are. But, you know, you wake up one day somewhere in, in the middle of your life and you realize, who am I apart from my history? And who am I apart from the roles I play? And all of those things can come caving in on you. Mine, mine hit at my half century mark. And um, it was a combination of things. But, it, it you know... I, within the pandemic it is stirring up deep-seated yeah. things that many of us have decided 
I'm not ready to deal with this yet. And it's coming out and saying, well, whether you really deal with it or not, it's, we're here, we're back. You know, I, Friday the 13th, we're back. Hey, that's a horrible, that's a horrible analogy. But in some cases, <laughs> and listen, I have worked with many people in the last year and a half who have had profoundly traumatic dreams. Yeah. Profoundly restless nights just because of the pandemic. But it's not, the pandemic is sim has, was simply a trigger. Yes. To activate things below the level of their conscious awareness because at a conscious level we can only hold between three and five pieces of information in our mind at a time we have a reticular activation system god god built us in such a way we're fearfully and wonderfully made that our reticular activation system which is in the back of the brain filters out two million bits of information per second so that we can focus so, I mean, if that ever goes awry, you know, Nikolai Tesla went through a season where that thing went went south in his life as a young man. And he could hear sounds on the street that wouldn't stop. He thought he was going crazy. And when he but when he came through that, his brilliance began to shine. Um, I, I don't know that I'd want to pay that kind of price for the kind of brilliance he had. But, but we can only hold three to five bits of information. The idea that we can multitask is, is, is a myth. We can't multitask. We, we, we don't do a lot of things well. We, 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 we do well when we focus on one thing. We deceive ourselves into thinking we can multitask. But it's, it's part of the, um, the pathology of 21st century living and late 20th century living that we think we can multitask. This one thing I do, seems to be the way we were created to be and um so yeah there's a lot of unfinished business coming to the surface and this, the circumstances yeah. are triggering it yeah i think that i i feel like the pandemic has um has certainly accelerated uh the exposure of things uh all around us but inside of us and uh, we've had to, the coming home and the isolation has sort of forced us in many ways to see, you know, the things that are not quite right in our marriages, the things that are not quite yeah. right in our, in our children, the things that are in us are, are not really, you know, and, uh, and, and, and then I think that has exacerbated the, all the anxiety and the the depression that people are feeling and so um it makes sense that this is happening but how how do we deal with it how do we how do we begin to deal with it without getting into magical thinking so what is magical thinking tell us what's magical thinking and then how do we come out of that so that we can really before christ Okay, you know. so if you remember the name Jean Piaget from early childhood education. Somewhere in high school, we had to yeah. study those in snippets, and maybe in college, if yeah. you did a psychology course, early childhood development. Jean, Jean, Jean Piaget, early 20th century uh, child development psychologist, was like Eric Erickson. You coined the phrase magical thinking that until a child is 10, they believe that everything in their inner world causes what happens in the outer world. Mm. And so if I, so, so a baby cries and we pick them up, a baby cries and we give them milk, a baby cries, we give them food. And so the magical thinking begins because the baby thinks the world revolves around the baby. 
And gradually that, that, he, that, he, that he erodes away when the child begins to develop an, an ego. The ego develops somewhere in the first eight to 10 months, maybe, you know, I, I, somewhere in that journey when mama's face is not there every time we cry because mama wants us to learn how to self-soothe because a child governs their, their whole world is organized around mama's face or daddy's face, but usually mama's face. And so anytime another face comes into the picture and mama's not there, that child is radically disoriented. It can cry. And so, um, but our sense of who we are develops and, and we, until we're about seven, we tend to really believe that the world revolves around us. So if we, you know, and, and we, listen, I still, listen, I live in Orlando. Our kids, we moved from Raleigh back in when they were still growing up. And so we have annual passes to Disney. Even to this day, we take the grandkids. And so Tinkerbell still makes me cry. Jiminy Cricket still makes me cry. At, at six years old, I would watch The Wonderful World of Color with Walt Disney and Jiminy Cricket would sing and Tinkerbell would come flying in and with her fairy dust and I would cry like a baby. Well, I'm a lot older than that now. And so when Tinkerbell at the Magic Kingdom at night starts off the light show and she comes in on that wire up to the Magic Castle, I still cry when, 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 they, when she comes in and Jiminy Cricket sings When You Wish Upon a Star. So there's still magical thinking in me. It's just, it's just tempered by realism now. But I know I can't just wave a magic wand and make things go away. Right. I yearn for that um, because yeah. part of me that doesn't want to let go of that illusion wants that to be the case. But sometimes in adulthood, we revert to that because we don't know how to cope. And our coping strategies are weak. Yes. I. Before you go on, I wanted to ask a question about that because, yeah. you know, mostly the tribe that, that I run with and uh, and you too, you know, the Pentecostal, charismatic, third yeah. we are really into the supernatural. And, and I believe in the supernatural. I have seen God do absolute miracles, you know, and um, but how do we reconcile supernatural and that doesn't allow it to become magical thinking because just because I say something doesn't mean it's going to come to pass. One of the things I'm grateful for. Now, I have, I have personally reached people on every corner of the globe. So I know what it's like to, to have a large influence. I know what it's like to be in a meeting and to see someone have literally have their heart valves opened up when they're scheduled for major cardiac surgery within days. I know what that's like. Yeah. I also know what it's like to see a lot of people walk away not healed. Now, one of the things I'm grateful for, because one of my great heroes over the years was the late Dr. Charles Price. Dr. Charles Price and Smith Wigglesworth were probably the two Pentecostal pioneers from that early era in terms of healing that became world renowned more than others. And Price um, actually had more resurrections from the dead in his ministry than Wigglesworth did. And, and I was, I was um, when I was first ordained, um, licensed to preach the gospel, I was, uh, we were in Brooklyn. It was, Ruth and I had just gotten married. We were getting ready to go um, 
relocate, move to Canada, be on staff at the first position in ministry we had in Calgary. And during during the Bible school years, I I I I, tr- I stumbled on um, the book The Real Faith because at the time the Full Gospel Businessmen's Fellowship chapter in New York was growing. Dima Shakarian had been there. Later, I got to meet his daughter. I mean, just it just so many things have happened in my life. I mean, I I've gotten to meet some of the greatest voices in the charismatic Pentecostal renewal from three generations, and and to be able to as a kid to, can any good thing come out of Staten Island? Well, no, but God can use the screwed up kid and, and let him meet some of the people that he really wanted to meet, didn't realize, you know, and, I, and I've, I've been graced to know a whole lot of people in the kingdom. But Demas, Demas highly endorsed Price's book, The Real Faith. And I devoured it. And I ended up talking about Dr. Price anytime I get up and preach. And um, I got all the books that he wrote and I devoured them. Well, anyway, on the night that um, we were licensed, an old Norwegian couple, Hilda and Tangle, Tangle Torgelson, Hilda, Hilda and Tangle Torgelson, Hildegard, Hildegard and Tangle. And they were the sweetest people. And they loved me. They doted on me. They, they knew my, my wife from the time she was little because they were close friends with her, her mom and dad. And mostly Scandinavians in that older generation in that church. The rest of us were all crazy, crazy Italians and Puerto Ricans. And, you know, they didn't quite have to do with all of us. But anyway, <laughs> Hildegard and Tangle walked up to us and she had this brown paper bag all crumbled up and it had oil on the outside. So I'm thinking we're going to get Norwegian pastry. Which I, was, I Listen, I love any kind of pastry. Hallelujah. <laughs> yeah. So, so she hands me, she and Tangle hand me this bag and it's full. And she said, Jesus told us you should re- have this as a gift from us for your ordination. And so I said, well, thank you. She said, we pray you enjoy it. And to this day, I'll never forget. It was just a precious moment. I mean, they're obviously in heaven now. Um, but I, I took it home and I said, honey, let's sit down. I know this is really good Norwegian pastry. And so we sit down in the kitchen and I open it up and it's about 20 copies of the golden grain from issue one to about issue 20 from 1929 through 1930, 31, Dr. Charles Price, his, week, his monthly magazine. And then inside that, there's the story of my life, his autobiography with his personal signature on it. So I have his personal autobiography with his autograph and and then at that time i had 20 copies of the golden ring today i own the entire set and i also have his personal greek bible that the family bequeathed to me uh that's another long story but that happened while i was one of the first nights i was on tvn and began to talk about him price's granddaughter saw me and they managed the, the estate of all his stuff and they reached out to one of the leading archivists in the pentecostal world in america and said we want we want Mark Sharona to have grandpa's Bible. Wow. And so um, I have it. I mean, it's, 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 I have it in a very special case. But the reason why I talk about Price is because Price had so many miracles in his ministry. But Price, two things. Number one, Price went through a very dark season, similar to the one I went through. And number two, Price wrestled because more people weren't healed than were healed in his ministry. And he agonized over those that weren't healed, which is why he wrote The Real Faith. Because 
What we don't want to realize, uh, Dr. Kim, is that in the early church, they didn't just have a theology. Now, this is going to get some of our friends upset, but that's okay. They've been wrong before. If they study the show, <laughs> they will discover that the early church didn't just have a theology of healing. They had a theology of illness. And if they carefully read even F.F. F. Bosworth, they will read that God will use, in, in Bosworth's work, he talks about in Christ the Healer, sometimes God will use healing as a harness sickness as a harness. And we don't want to hear that because our current popular theology demands that everyone get healed. But that was not the expectation of the early church. That's Jesus didn't die to teach us how to work miracles. That's not why he died. Christ died to heal us totally from the inside out. And, you know, now God confirms his word with signs and wonders. But the moment we impose on the sacred text that God has to do this, we have it flies in the face of much of the record of the ancient church, the apostolic era, much of the faith of the apologists, much of the early patristic era and the post-patristic, the anti-Nicene and post-Nicene fathers. Now, I do believe God heals, and I think we need to preach yeah. that God heals, but when it doesn't happen and we turn that into a guilt trip for people that don't have enough faith, we will be held yes. accountable for how we treat the sheep, and that is reprehensible. And there's a lot of people going to answer for that in, uh, in when they stand before the Lord, because that is not that is not the way we're supposed to talk to people that are in front. Well, and I think that, too, uh, I can remember when I first came into the Pentecostal movement um, because I'd had a radical encounter with the Holy Spirit. It really, really changed me. Oh, me too. Um, yeah. And. Um, and I started learning, you know, it was, I think it was, well, I, I had the encounter in 94. And so in those early years, the f one of the first things I started learning from, uh, from others in the Pentecostal movement was warfare, spiritual warfare and all that. And of course, you know, at that time it was like deliverance ministries, name all the right demons mm -hmm. and then name the sub demons under them. And then the, the demons under them and, and I remember probably just because, you know, I, I'm, I, I am a thinker, but I, I remember thinking to myself, how is this different than works in some ways? Like okay. I, I felt like, I felt like it was a way to avoid all suffering. Like if we name all the right demons, if we pray all the right prayers, if we make all the right declarations and yet, like you, I, I had had these breakdowns in my life, you know, and um, and it they didn't always solve that issue. Yeah. And the <laughs> idea that a tech that here, here's I just preached on this. Yeah, prayer works. That turns yeah. prayer into a technology instead of what it means to commune with God. We want techniques. We live in a technocratic culture that has crept into the church where we three easy steps to your healing, three steps yes. to your breakthrough, none of which is faithful. I, I know this gets many of the folk that listen upset, but you'll either prove the truth in your life at some point or you'll embrace it or you'll live in denial and delusion and keep going on and feeding this to people that will get so disillusioned after a while, they'll curse you for it. So yeah. we need to be faithful to proclaim the healing grace of Christ, but we yes. equally need to be faithful to look at the fact that the ancient church saw the journey from the initial period of enlightenment and conversion to the total sanctification and, 
and reception of 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 our of our resurrected bodies as a healing journey and it's more than healing for our body it's healing for the totality of our human condition they did not teach that god was was angry at us and he punished jesus and so we're going to hell they taught that god so loved us that he gave his son to heal us. Um, it was Athanasius, it was Gregory the theologian, one of the Cappadocian fathers, Gregory of Nazianzus. What he has not assumed, he cannot heal. Mm. So when it says the chastisement for our peace fell upon him, when I think about what I went through, I had to learn from the inside out how it is that we handle anxiety. So. Just two examples. Paul says in Philippians chapter four, be anxious for nothing, but in all things by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now that sounds like a really simple verse, right? We think we know, and so there's three easy steps. Right. Be anxious for nothing with all things with prayer and supplication, let your, and give thanks. It's a, and, so, and so we got these three easy, but that's not what Paul is saying. And that word supplication in the Greek is a profoundly um, um, insightful word that we could build an entire argument for. He is the first depth, depth psychologist in the Christian church because of what supplication really means. Because to reach down deep and bring to speech your pain. Oh, that's beautiful. He, yeah, he's not saying deny reality. No, and so, so sometimes what we're so doing. Imagine for a moment you are in a city that you are assigned um, to build a church and you are hitting all sorts of stressors as well as breaking into an arena with the gospel, the forces of hell, and and you are with these people in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. These are not metaphors. These are Paul describing to the church at Corinth, hey, when I was with you, I was going through hell. Yeah. So do you tell Paul as a Corinthian, be anxious for nothing? Or is Paul at the end of his life facing the chopping block, making us aware that to get to a place where you can be anxious for nothing, you got to go through a whole lot of stuff where your anxiety has gotten the best of you. When Jesus takes Peter, James, and John with him into the Garden of Gethsemane and says, watch with me for an hour, and then goes a little way further, and all of a sudden, and the Greek is really clear in Luke's gospel, he collapses under the weight of anxious trauma to the point where the anxiety is so great because of what he is, what he is embracing as his his suffering, his passion, is he begins to sweat drops of blood. Our deliverance begins in the garden. Uh, the blood is already being shed in the garden. Mm -hmm. and, and he collapses under the weight of panic and trauma. Now, this is God in the flesh yeah. who is, as in his humanness, is bearing the weight of what we will uh, discover is the weight of the entire world. And, and he said in, and he said in, um, I mean, he clearly says in, in the Sermon on the Mount, be anxious for nothing. But what do you tell him when he's in the garden? Really, Peter goes, oh, but Jesus, you, you said be anxious for nothing. Is that what you tell him? Or do you discover that we may be, or maybe Lent sweet is right. We, we suffer from versitis. 
where we pull verses out of context and build a doctrine out of them and divorce them from the context in which they've been said. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's a lot. We are a lot more complicated than we. And when we reduce ourselves to formulas or techniques and don't understand the complexities of the human mind and consciousness, we end up in error and in all sorts of deception. So, Dr. Sharona, for the people who are listening, who are, are experiencing some of this, you know, I sometimes I think that when we when we talk like this, we can be accused of. And of course, you know, I, I don't care what we get accused of, but but we can be accused of um, taking hope from people because they're not they they can't be healed the way we we believe that they can be healed but that's not what's going on here i just want to i just want to talk a little bit about where do we find the hope when we are in a place where we are depressed and anxious you know first of all i want to say to anyone who's listening if you are in that if you are in that place you're going through a dark night of soul you're going through this place of anxiety and depression that you can't get out of you know um one of the reasons we're talking about this, because you don't need to feel guilty about that or ashamed. Um, and and if you and if you you know you haven't received your healing yet, you're still going through uh, uh, this this burdensome thing in this time of trauma. Again, you don't have to be ashamed by that um, because this, it's not that you haven't had enough faith to get healed. God can come and heal you. He will come and comfort you, but. But where do we find the hope, Dr. Mark? Where do we where do we find the hope in a situation like that? And where do we begin to walk and participate in the healing that Christ does have for us okay, so in those kinds of situations? I, I hear you. So first and foremost, Christ is in us. And I have to begin from a perspective of recognizing I am in Christ. And Christ is in me. Whether I feel him or not, Christ is in me. So I begin from the fact that he will never fail me or forsake me. The question becomes, what does it mean that he will never fail me? No temptation has befallen you except such as is common to man. And God who is faithful will provide the means or the way by which you can endure it. We don't want to hear that part. Because we want everything to be gone. In, uh, we want an evil day to last no more than 24 hours. Well, my evil day lasted three and a half years. Right. And no amount of name it and claim it made it go away. And I right. preached it for years. So first and foremost, Christ is in us. Secondly, he is for us and he suffers with us. But what we have to do, but some of our sufferings, Dr. Kim, are not the result of some demonic thwarting. Right. But they're the result of cognitive distortions that yes. we have developed over years that have become frames of thinking. You know, beliefs don't travel alone. They travel, you know, as a system. They go four layers deep. And sometimes we think, well, if I just rebuke the surface thought, I'm good. No, you got to go all the way down to the unconscious level where there's more than three to five pieces of information down there. So think for a moment about an iceberg, right? An iceberg, all you see above the ocean is the tip of it. The greater part of it is below it. 
Now think of an analogy of a sailboat sitting on that water. The sailboat is your conscious mind. Everything below the water is your unconscious mind and the waves are your feelings, not your emotions, your feelings. We are creatures that live in language. We have emotions, we have feelings and we have moods and we are embodied. What makes a feeling a feeling is that I feel it, which means in my body, I have sensations. I can't get to the deeper beliefs until I own my feelings. So classic example, we read Romans 12 and we, 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 we dissect it and say, be transformed by the renewal of your mind that you may prove that. Which is, and so then we think that means I memorize enough verses so I can throw them back at the devil when I go through hell. That is not right. what it's saying. Paul says, I urge you, therefore, by the mercies of God. Number one, present your body a living sacrifice. You're embodied. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of mind. I cannot experience the renewal in the spirit of my mind unless I'm in touch with my body. Mm. Because my body registers everything I'm feeling that I don't want to pay attention to, that I numb out. And I can't get to the root issues until I do that. And so our bodies can tell us a whole lot. Um, and so all of this is going on. And some of our pain is tied to what, what psychologists call our cognitive distortions or our dissociations. We either repress what we don't want to face or we suppress it. And so God doesn't heal us by saying, I'm going to make it go away. God heals us by saying, you need to face this head on and stop running away from it. I've got to become aware in one of the most discouraging things I had to deal with in that season was face my own anxiety. I couldn't rebuke it away. I had to look at it. I had to hold it in front of me and say, this is where I am. I, you know, I used to, when, when, when Ruth and I used to travel um, full time, long before we had enough money to fly on planes, we drove across the country back and forth. And my schedule was such, I had to be in Minnesota one night and in New York the next night and then back in Iowa the next night. I mean, so, I mean, we would have sleepless nights on the road. But I used to hate driving from New York to Pennsylvania, through Pennsylvania to Ohio and Michigan, because Interstate 80 went on forever. And here we are on and Interstate 80, you'd get to a rest stop. And back in those days, we had Rand McNally's. We didn't have GPS's. So, you, you know, and, and it would take a while. The, the printing is about this yeah, big. And, yeah, and so you get off at the rest stop to use the restroom. And in, in between the men's room and the ladies' room, there's a big map. And on the big map, there, there's, the, there's a red line going through the state. And then there's a red arrow that says, you are here. Well, I used to hate the red arrow because it was never close enough to the end of the map. It was always <laughs> on this side of the map. And I thought we drove for hours. We should be further along by now. Well, yeah. until you can accept where the red arrow is when you're dealing with anxiety and depression mm. and allow it to be what it is. Not resign yourself to it, but accept it. You can't get past it. So until I own it, I won't know what it's trying to tell me. Because all of our negative emotions are telling us something. And the more I refuse to face them and rebuke them, 
the more they say, I rebuke you back. And so accepting them becomes, and then what? Then what's even more difficult is if they don't go away right away, we still have to live these lives in the values of the kingdom. I've still got to live the life I'm called to live, which actually does help us because um, being involved and committed to what we're called to be, do, be and do can actually help manage it to agree. It won't make it go away right away. But we've got to be committed to action. But what that does is it makes us aware. And this is a process and it doesn't go yeah. away. Right? It yeah. reveals what in, in what Stephen Hayes, Dr. Stephen Hayes calls our inflexible thinking. Mm. So there's areas where we have inflexible thinking that we refuse to recognize. And when we refuse to recognize our inflexible thinking, our negative emotions flare up. They're trying to tell us something. And so you can deny it, you can rebuke it, but it's not going to go away. You've got to face it, accept it, and look at where you are inflexible and learn how to look at it in a way that says, I am not these thoughts, I am not these feelings, but I am having them. So what do mm -hmm. I do with them? Now, I mean, this is pretty complex. Right. I mean, there are, there, are, yeah. there are all sorts of things we've got to go through, but that's where it starts. It starts with accepting the pain. It, you know, I was uh, I was a nurse before I became a minister, before God called me to ministry, and um, and in in medicine, in you know, you you have patients come in with a, with multiple symptoms, right? And if they have ignored their symptoms, then then the disease process is much further along by the time they come in. First of all. Secondly, if we if they come in and we only treat their symptoms and never get to the underlying cause of the symptoms, then then the disease process just continues and it usually comes back with a vengeance later. And it and it seems like this is what you're saying, you know, that our emotions and and the things uh, and the things happening in our bodies, like some some people I know when they wake very anxious, they get rashes and things like that. But these are these are the symptoms of something deeper going on, and um, and sometimes we treat the symptoms like I don't know. We eat over it. We we deny it. We we have dangerous behaviors. You know, we 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 entertain ourselves to death, whatever, so that we can avoid thinking about it. We have addictions, you know, and um, but if we but if we don't ever own the emotions and go deeper, how do we ever get through it? And and. And this isn't just uh, I don't I've heard I know when I first came into came into the charismatic movement, you know, there was some talk about um, that psychology had no place in, in sure. this I, I, faithful I, I, charismatic I, thing. Yeah, I've taken hits for it over the years. But and that would have been true if we go back 150 years and strictly looked at Freud and Freud's idea that everything was a sexual problem. But. So many advances have been made in neuroscience in the last 150 years and in the world of therapeutic consciousness. Mm -hmm. Pastors are ill-equipped when they are not in seminary uh, trained, you know. Um, yeah. and, and here's the problem. We think we can fix people with magical thinking. Right. And, and that becomes, because then we end up thinking, and then we go rely on, well, get a word for them, and the word will fix them. Well, that's not the purpose of prophetic utterance. That's an abuse of prophetic utterance. Prophetic utterance in the hands of someone 
who is highly sensitive to discerning good and evil can be a wonderful add to in the journey towards wholeness, but it does not replace the kind of truths that need to be embraced, especially when it comes to accepting negative thoughts and negative emotions and accepting the kind of things that are out of our control in life. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Hi, I'm Mark Sharona. I'm a recovering free-floating anxiety addict. <laughs> and I still have hiccups. Yeah. I am beyond where I was, and I'm grateful to God where he's brought me from, but I can promise you I still have hiccups. I just know how to handle them a lot more wisely today than I did prior to this well over a decade ago. That's beautiful. And so accepting what's out of our control doesn't mean you resign yourself to it. It means you, you are here. Well, I want to get there. Okay, but you can't until you admit where you are. You can't get to where you want to be. And and no no oversimplification of this is going to get you out. Supplication involves groaning. Supplication mm -hmm. involves touching your pain and giving it a voice. Supplication involves getting really gut level honest about what those things are telling you. So, I mean... If we really want to unpack Paul's be anxious for nothing, but in all things by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, that's a process that takes quite a while until the peace of God. And you're always going to hear someone, well, I prayed once and it all went away. Well, wonderful. Just come back in 10 years after you've had the real crisis in your life and ask me if it still works like that. Because most people that do that are lying and live in a place where they repress or suppress a lot of their negative emotions and don't deal with them. And I, you know, you can spot somebody that lives in denial very easily and they're always legalistic and they always don't want to face their stuff and they've always got to be right. <laughs> Ouch. Yes. <laughs> I've met a few. I was one. <laughs> Let's just say. I think we all, I think all of us go through that. That's yeah. You get to a point where you got to say, you know what? Yeah. Dr. Phil's classic question, how's that working for you? Right. How's that working for you? So two, two simple questions. Well, yeah. they may not be actually so question, so uh, simple before we begin to close this time. And, uh, but if I, if, if I'm a, if I'm a pastor listening today and I know that we are facing uh, a lot of fallout from this uh, last couple of years and all the shaking, um, how do I begin to think about how I'm going to help my people get through this next so, season? So as a pastor, a pastor owes it to God and to their people to be as equipped as possible so that when they stand behind the sacred desk, they're not just giving their opinion. They're giving something that is substantive and reliable. Pastors that want to be popular never vet their sources. They give their opinions. Paul does say, study to show yourself approved. So here's what I would say to all the pastors. Whatever you don't know about the cure of souls, start on a journey. You can start with the early church fathers. 
But then also InterVarsity Press has put out in the last number of years some wonderful major works on psychology by clinical Christian psychologists who do theology and psychology well. Also, Dr. David Benner's works, and he's written about 20 books, and he is a he is a clinical psychologist who's a brilliant Christian theologian who can help a pastor understand the terrain of the psyche and the way the psyche has been formed and shaped in life by the various dynamics that we go through. And understanding that can help then when you look at scripture because you start looking at scripture and you realize, oh my goodness, that's probably what's going on here. So when, I mean, when, when Jacob goes into the tent and doesn't want to be exposed as a deceiver, he's really uncomfortable putting on the skins of his, of, of the goat to look like his brother. What kind of trauma does that create for someone when in order to get acceptance, they've got to be somebody else and mask who they are. Well, I can promise you, I can retell that story in a lot of people's lives and go back to their family of origin and the family system they were raised in. And I can use family systems theory and look at their mother complexes and their father complexes and the dysfunctions in their family because none of us were raised in a perfectly sinless family. Last I checked, the only sinless person that's around is named Jesus and he certainly was not my parents, okay? So none of us were raised in a sinless home. So all of us have known the wounds of sin. And all of us have issues in relationship to mommy and daddy, even if we don't admit we do. And we all form attitudes and shapes about how we see the world. And sometimes we form shapes, daddy's never wrong or mommy's never wrong. And then we marry somebody and say, well, my daddy didn't say that, so your, your daddy had to be wrong. And so, so, so you marry, you marry, and you discover there are two people in the room, but there are six people present. <laughs> each the way they see the other, each the way they see themselves, and each the way they really are. And getting those six people on the same page can take ten years to build compatibility before they even can begin to understand what marriage is all about. So, a pastor deserves to spend time being equipped and trained, even if it's just exposing themselves to materials. And then when you expose yourself to the material and you don't know something, learn how to ask questions instead of assuming, well, I'm gonna just dismiss this because I don't agree with it. When you're dealing with people with degrees who have spent their whole life dealing with the human condition, don't think that your download from the Holy Spirit, which it's not a, God doesn't download anything. I get so tired of that term. It is such an unfaithful term. It is sickening to me. And the older I get, the more angry I get when I hear people say it. Please stop using download. That's not how the spirit of revelation works from the inside out at the divine intersection, uh, at, the, at the intersection between where the human and the divine meet. It doesn't work that way. It's from the inside out and it's not a download. This is not a technical thing. It's like a computer. There's a way of discerning, there's a way of developing, there's a way of growing. But a pastor needs to present themselves to those who are capable. And that's what I'm saying. There are resources available for pastors if they want them. And uh, I'm, happy to make, I'm, I'm happy to make a list of those for them as well. But 
they, they, they need to study to show themselves approved. And I would argue that studying to show ourselves approved, Paul said that with two double doctorates. One from his work as a Jewish scholar with Gamaliel and one at the University of Tarsus. And he was skilled. He, Paul knew Stoic philosophy. Paul knew Plato, Aristotle, and Socrates. Paul knew uh, Philo. I mean, so, so when Paul says study to show yourself approved to Timothy, he understands you are in Ephesus and you are in the leading pagan city of ancient, of ancient, of ancient Asia Minor. And you need to understand how to deal with how the gospel relates in a Gentile world. That doesn't come with just getting a download. That requires giving yourself to the discipline of understanding the apostles doctrine and understanding how to work with it. And then understanding, well, why does Paul use platonic ideas? So it's Plato. How do you, well, then how do you integrate Plato with Christ? I mean, that, I mean there's, there's so much that we take for granted that we, we, we just think we know and we don't know. And the more, I can tell you this, Dr. Kim, the more I learn, the more I realize how little I know. Oh, me too. Yes. And the more I realize I don't know the minute I met you. <laughs> so I, have a stock of, I have a stack of books, people, that I haven't I haven't had a moment to start except a couple of them. And uh, I'm waiting to read. The second question that I had for you before I ask you the very last question is um, you started with we started with, you mentioned Job, and um, and it actually the last few days I've been reading the book of Job and um, and noticing things about his friends and how in the end, you know, the Lord says, you haven't spoken to me right like my servant Job, you know. But um, for, the, for those who are friends, the friends of those going through uh, a very difficult, difficult, anxious, depressive time, how do we be a good friend? Just be with them. Ask them how they feel. Don't give them advice. Don't, don't, don't. If you want to quote something, open the Psalms and just read the Psalms. Start somewhere. Start in Psalm 1, go through Psalm 150, but just read the scripture aloud. But don't give your opinion and don't tell them. Don't, don't presume. Just sit with them. You know, you don't want to get me started on the book of Job because we have built so many doctrines that are false based on the book of Job with unfaithful readings of it that it just, it does more damage than it does good. It doesn't bring healing to people. And Jesus is indeed a healer. And we need to, Ezekiel sat with the exiles. What gave him the ability to prophesy to them is that he sat where they sat. The problem with Eli, Eli, Elihu and and um, Eliphaz and, and, and the other two is that they sat for a while and then they couldn't keep their mouth shut. Yeah. And at the end, God says, you didn't speak faithfully of me. And then Job becomes the priest who has to make intercession for them to yes. release them from their transgressions because they were going to be held accountable to God for speaking falsely about God and misrepresenting God to the complaint of Job. Those are sobering things that yeah. we always need to keep in mind. Those yeah. are sobering realities. We will give an answer to God for what we say to people um, and how we interact with them. And Christ is healing presence. He's healing presence. He just, John at the foot of the cross, Mary, his mother, Mary Magdalene and Mary of Bethany, they're there at the foot of the cross, beholding him, just yeah. being there. 
He says things. They don't say anything back. They're just there. The answer to Job is the four people at the bottom of the cross. Because this is the one who's suffering for all of us. And, they, and then John, a generation later, takes us on a journey in the gospel. When we get to John 19, he's not focusing on the blood and the gore. He says, I'm focusing on everything he said before he died. Mm. I'm contemplating his, the last words of a dying man. And, um, just, you know, I, I think it's a whole different approach to Christianity. Yeah, that's beautiful. So, Dr. Sharona, thank you so much. I'm wondering, the very last question I ask all of my guests this, is that um, what do you, is there anything that you're seeing ahead? And, uh, and how would you encourage uh, my listeners with whatever it is that you're seeing ahead, you know, in order to prepare them for that? Yeah, uh, we are in perhaps the most turbulent era in our lifetimes, and it's not going to change for quite a while. The pandemic was the beginning, but it is not the end. And we are going to have to come to terms with the fact that God is shaking everything that can be shaken. And so that what cannot be shaken will remain. And there are um, I, you know, not, not, I, I do think the, we covered, Len and I covered some of it in, um, Rings of Fire, Len Sweet and I, when we, when we co-wrote the book, um, we covered some of it in Rings of Fire. There are another 15 chapters that Tyndale did not publish because they didn't want to publish a 400 page book, but we are in a state of fear and flux and it's accelerated. And so there's a lot of upheaval. And we need to be able to know how to walk with Christ in the midst of the kind of uncertainty that we're facing. And it's not going to go away overnight. And I know that's not a happy thought, but <laughs> priests need to be crying out between the porch and the altar and not telling everybody it's a wonderful day all the time. I think we need to take the blinders off and not act like the emperor's new clothes. We need to realize they're naked as a jaybird. That the two kids said he's buck naked. The guy's buck naked. Yes. That, ain't, that, ain't no, that ain't no suit. It's buck naked. And if the sooner we can get there, the more I think we will see the kind of things we need to see in terms of the revealing of the God self to us through Christ. The kinds of realities that the triune God wants to bring to bear in terms of refreshing and renewal. Um, there needs to be a, a once again a a recovery of what I call out with the old and in with the older, but we're in for a bumpy ride. And uh, I know that runs counter to a lot of what some of the prophets are saying. Um, but I, I just, based on what I see, based on the studies I've done, based on the cycles, there are about five major cycles, historic cycles that are all converging at this point. One of them goes back 5,000 years, but we are in the midst of a bunch of converging cycles. And those seasons in history are never smooth. They are always restless and bumpy. My apologies for being the bearer of that kind of Oh, thing. no. I expected you to say that. <laughs> but I do I think it's a marvelous opportunity for the church in a way that we haven't seen yes. yet. So, so I think if the church can, can recognize this is an opportunity for us to bear witness to Christ in a way we've not been able to before, I think it can be a wonderful thing to see the renewal that God wants to bring to us. Amen. Will you pray for us? Will you especially sure. pray for those who yeah. are depressed and anxious during this time and feel traumatized from everything that has gone sure. on? 
Father, we come before you, not in our own merit, but we piggyback on Jesus. We cling to him because you gave him to us as our salvation. And by the spirit, we know he brings us into your presence to be immersed in your endless, ceaseless love. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters that at this very moment, they would be aware that underneath them are the everlasting arms of your son and your spirit caressing them, upholding them. They will not fall into an abyss. You hold them securely. Make them aware that from the depth of their being, they are known. Not that they know you fully, but you know them better than they know themselves. And your perfect love will drive out every trace of fear. And that they can trust you, that you who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. Give them the grace to accept the negative and painful emotions and not run away from them so that then they can make choices to face their inflexible thinking and realize how they need to learn how to reframe where they are so they can take a step forward and begin to move into a place of greater wholeness, greater health, greater well-being, and greater flourishing. You, Lord Jesus, are the author and the finisher of our faith. We trust you and commit ourselves into your care and keeping, knowing that you indeed who began a good work are faithful to complete it. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Dr. Sherna, for being with me today. What a what a joy, always. And uh, I learn stuff every time we talk. I love it. Um, lifelong learners. So everybody, thank you for joining me on the Move Forward podcast. Uh, again, I'm your host, Dr. Kim Moss, and we've been talking with Dr. Mark Sharona today. You can find him in, on MarkSharona.com and the Living Edge, is it Church, Church on the Living Edge? edge. Uh -huh. And where can they find your books? Uh, you mentioned Amazon, the Fire. Amazon. Um, most, most of my books are on Amazon and then even the book Rings of Fire with Leonard Sweet and myself, that's also on Amazon. Wonderful. And uh, and tune in also to when you uh, look him up on Instagram because he has little snippets that he does all the time. And he's talking about this very subject um, lately uh, over the last actually couple of months. Yeah. And uh, so go back and listen to those and uh, you will be renewed. So God bless you, everyone. And we'll see you next time on Move Forward. Thank you for joining us for the Move Forward podcast. We would love for you to rate this podcast and share it with a friend. You can connect with Dr. Kim on social media. For those links and more, visit her website, KimMoss.com. Host Dr. Kim Moss leads Kim Moss Ministries and Women of Our Time. She is the author of Prophetic Community, The Way of the Kingdom, Facing Ziklag, and The Four Questions. You can find those books on Amazon. Remember, never throw away your confidence. It is time to move forward.